This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Royfield here. Before we start, we have a new advertiser. Now, before some of you go, ugh, and fast forward a couple of minutes um please lend me your ears because this is important because it helps to keep the lights on around here and pay some bills and this advertiser is also very different knowledge of the classics is back in style you know it's people like those philosopher authors people like homer and cicero and spinola and some of the moderns like nietzsche as well online great books is designed to help you to develop a regular habit of reading the great works of western culture With weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools and a dedicated community of fellow readers, they can help you keep on track and schedule with your reading. OnlineGreatBooks.com has a reading goal system that is designed to help you to progress through reading and the comprehension of the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month they select for you an edition of one of the great books and they will send it directly to your home they begin with homer and then progress through the works of plato aristotle descartes and then on to the moderns they even do shakespeare so if you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the classics of western culture go to onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash roi enter the promo code roi to get your 25 percent off your first three months of learning Enjoy. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. That Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Spin Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, back in my hometown of Birmingham for a month or so before I jet out to see my son graduate in Toronto. Today, I'm joined by a foreign correspondent, the man with a passport that has more stamps than Henry Kissinger. It's Tim Marshall. Tim, how are you? I'm very well. What a coincidence. I've actually just got it in front of me. I'm off to um, Switzerland tomorrow and I'm just leafing through to places that I no longer really go to. Um, Pakistan, uh, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, uh, Yemen. Uh, oh, hang on. Iran. Places I suspect I... Uh, oh, China. May not return to, but th- those were the days. When you go to Switzerland, because I've never been, you get a stamp, don't you? Because it's the EEA. Um, I don't think they care enough um, to bother, uh, given that it's a... Yes, an EEA country affiliated to the European Union. The United Kingdom remains a country in the European Union for now. I don't think you get a stamp. I've never noticed one before, and I've been a fair fair few times. Mm. All right. Well, Tim was the IRN's Paris correspondent. He's also worked for the Beeb and Sky News, reporting from Europe, the USA, Asia, and many other places in between. In a week that has seen the Trump summit with the Northern Korean leader Kim Jong-un be called off, then put back on again, we ask, just what does Italy's new populist government mean for Italy and its relationship with the EU? 
Italy's President Sergio Mattarella swore in Giuseppe Conte, a law professor with zero political experience, as the new Prime Minister of Western Europe's first anti-establishment government. Conte was chosen as a neutral, acceptable compromise candidate by the leaders of the anti-establishment five-star movement and the far-right League party. The new government should calm a political crisis that has embroiled Italy for weeks. Matteo Salvini, the leader of the League, becomes Deputy Prime Minister and also has the job of Interior Minister. He will share the deputy leadership with five-star leader Luigi Di Maio, who, like Salvini, has a second role as Labour and Industry Minister. Giovanni Tria, a little-known economics professor, is the new Economy Minister. The new government now has ten days to win a vote of confidence. It's due next week and after that the government will be in charge formally. It's expected to be more antagonistic towards Brussels than the previous administration, but the alliance only has a narrow majority in the Italian Senate, easing concerns in the EU over the new government's decision-making. Tim, how can these two diverse partners ever hope to get along? What hope do you have for the new Italian government? Well, what hope do you have for any Italian government? I mean, I think it's something like 65 since World War II. Um, so it would be unlikely for it to last long. And there's nothing new in that. What keeps them together for the moment is power. Uh, they mm. are not ideologically together, but... The one thing that does bound them together is some they're, they're anti-establishment because yes. they're relatively new part. Well, the league isn't that new per se, but has never really had power before. But also because they are eurosceptic, they're bounded by that, aren't they? Though one's a right-leaning party, one's a left-leaning. Yes, party. they're bound together by both being outsiders that have come together in order to form a coalition because they can't win power by themselves. Uh, and you're right, that is the one policy that they're both sceptical about the European Union and uh, intend to push back against it. But the real thing keeping them together is power. You know, the League gets X number of seats in Cabinet and Five Star gets X number of seats in Cabinet and with that comes a nice salary and a car and a bodyguard and a platform upon which to build. So I think they will last at least a few months. Just for, for listeners that don't know, can you give us a, a slight potted history, not, nothing war and peace, about the reason why these two parties have even come about? Well, it is partly because they've had, off the top of my head, 65 governments in 70 years. I mean, it really is something ridiculous like that. that that's, that's one thing about the instability. Um, and, and current with that has been... Corruption scandal after corruption scandal after corruption scandal. And on top of that has come the mass migration of people uh, coming out of Africa, uh, the Balkans to a lesser extent, uh, and uh, the Middle East. And these things have all come to a head. And so into this fray jump two new parties. One, the Five Star Movement, which was actually Beppo Grille, who was, uh, is a comedian, a very well-known TV comedian, who formed this party almost as a joke. To his surprise, it, it just took off. He's now stepped to one side, and it's now led by politicians. But they are all outsiders, and they all do not play the same games that the old Italian politicians played. Um, and on the mm -hmm. other side, they're, they're, they're sort of considered left of centre, although these terms are increasingly redundant because some of their ideas are not what I would call left of centre. Coming from the clear hard right, it used to be called the Northern League because they were predominantly in the northern Italian states, which are the richer states. They even at one point wanted to hive off northern Italy and create a separate state because that was the rich state, which is why they've now changed their name to the League because they now realise they've got their popular throughout the entire country. And they're the ones who are hitting the really hard policies. They've, they've stated... We are going to throw out, deport five hundred thousand illegal immigrants. Wow, that that that's a lot of people. Now, so they're united by their euroscepticism, and also they're not necessarily the greatest fans, actually, of the euro, are they? No, but I'm not convinced by their criticisms that they actually mean to take 
Italy out of the euro. I mean, it's a bit nitty gritty, but the reason their first economics minister that was put up to be approved by the president, the head of state, was rejected was because he was so overtly, let's get out of the euro. Uh, The president said, I'm not going to, in that case, let you form a government. So they've come back with someone a bit softer. I think what they're trying to do is scare Brussels and the European Union to the degree that the European Union will allow Italy, this new government, to try to spend its way out of trouble, to put an end to austerity, to start really pouring money in, which is against the EU regulations. You've got to fit within certain bands. But I think they're trying to scare Brussels so much that Brussels won't bite them when they try this new policy in order to make sure they stay in the euro. Because if Italy fell out of the euro, the euro could collapse and then the dream is over. And there isn't just even just the the fact of the euro and and Italy pulling out and Italy being a founding member of the EU. It's also just the European ideal, isn't it? Because we have a founding member that has elected a populist party or parties for for the first time. Yes. At a time when you have Britain heading for the exit. Yeah, this is the the philosophical meaning of it, if if you know what I mean. Yeah. um, I mean, the rise of the populist parties has been going on for five or six years now, right across the EU in, in all the countries. But this is the first time that two of them have come together to actually form the government of an EU nation. Um, close on behind them, though, uh, places in Scandinavia, Sweden, the, 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 the far right of the second biggest party, um, in Slovenia, they've just elected a far right government. So, you know, it is part of a trend. But what has shaken Brussels is that this sort of two parties that have no real love for the EU as an institution are suddenly in power. And they're very concerned that as a founding member, it's striking a real blow to the idea of uh, the union itself. One of the things that's always going to surprise me, or at least I've noted, sorry, as a much better expression about Italian politics, is that since the last scandal, and, and I cannot remember what that scandal is even called now, but they, they have these... money, Royfield. <laughs> yes, m- money and backhanders. Um, they have this term, a technocratic government. Yes. And this uh, political grouping is seen as half political and half technocratic. What exactly does a technocratic government mean? Well, let me give you the example of Italy uh, mm-hmm. last, a couple of years ago. Uh, and this is true also of Greece for a short period of time. Basically, the governments were formed by sort of machine politicians um, who weren't elected to their positions and, let's say, uh, f- the finest minds in economics, you know, a, a, a Nobel prize-winning economist from some university, and they're put into the cabinet um, to form a a government which the head of state signs off on. But what's really going on is that in Brussels, they're saying, uh, we will back you if you put these technocrats in to run it in a technocratic way, by which I mean they're not standing on these are our ideological points about X, Y, and Z. You know, this is our party and this is our great tradition. These are managers and they're brought in to manage um, and they're brought in to manage economically so they make sure that Italy doesn't move outside of these economic boundaries that you're supposed to stay within uh, the amount of inflation, the amount of spending, unemployment rates. You know, you've got to fit in these bands. Same happened to Greece. Basically, Mm. Brussels, for which read the two richest countries, France and Germany, told them who was going to be their politicians and their government. That is this EU version of a technocratic government. Just so we kind of understand um, the kind of the political, the geographical and political um, map of Italy, could you tell us where which party is relatively strong? Are the the Five Star Movement are they big in cities or in the north? How is that actually playing out on the ground? Five Star is is, is centred in Rome and quite powerful there, and they have the the mayorship there as well. Um, of the two parties, I think the Northern, sorry, what used to be called the Northern League is now the League, is is the, the dominant partner. And 
it has surprised people by growing out of its northern states, such as Lombardy, and now it is strong almost from the heel of Italy to the top of Italy, up with the border with um, you know, Austria and Switzerland and places. Um, Five Star is more dotted around. Uh, Five Star is also, yeah, I think more urban, um, but the other parties are melting. I mean, the Socialist Party in particular, the Communist Party has almost disappeared. Berlusconi's party has gone right down. These are all the big establishment parties. And these two new upstarts, uh, when you look at the electoral map now, from top to bottom, they're winning seats. Just before we, we leave Italy and its new coalition government, I'm going to be interested in trying to understand the role of the president here. And you did say in an earlier kind of question, sorry, in an earlier answer, sorry, that he vetoed um, the new finance minister because of his bellicosity towards uh, Germany, Merkel and, and the EU. So describe the position the Italian president actually holds in terms of when there is coalition negotiations, new parties trying to form a government? The current president, uh, Sergio Mattarella, it's the same as all the presidents, is the head of state. And under the Italian constitution, whoever wins the most seats or can put together a coalition government goes to the president and say, right, this is my cabinet, X, Y and Z people in it. And the president has the constitutional right to say, I accept this cabinet, uh, or, and it doesn't happen very often, but it did happen last month, or, no, I, I do not accept it. And, of course, this caused a row because nobody, you know, well, he was elected, but, you know, the people had spoken, the cabinet was formed, but this one man said, no, I'm not having it. But he was within his constitutional rights. He does have that power. And he also explained it that he felt strongly that this economics professor uh, would push so hard to take Italy out of the euro, whereas that is not what the two parties that formed the government had campaigned on overtly. Consequently, it would be unfair to now have a government that was going to go down that role. Now, that is democracy, but it's also widely thought that the, the bigwigs around Europe in Brussels and in Paris and in Berlin were on the phone to the president saying, you can't have a government with this guy, uh, in which case that is somewhat less democratic. You know, it, it's politics and wheels within wheels. Hmm. So um, you you reckon this government won't particularly last that long, but it really has shaken up um, Italian politics and um, it's a, and it's a potentially um, a harbinger of a realignment for widen European politics. Well, yes, it's emblematic of what's been going on for, for several years now. And, and honestly, to take a look at the Slovenian uh, election this week, uh, the party coming in is is the party that won the most votes, which may form the cabinet, the government, uh, is very similar to the League in that it is overtly right wing, illiberal and takes an extremely hard view on immigration. And, you know, the one thing to remember about the League is they are promising they will deport 500,000 people. Well, what does that look like? They will absolutely take a hard line. And that hard line is where Europe is going. And it's not just that they win this election. It's that as everyone sees the growth of the hard right some parties on the centre-right begin to tack rightwards. And this has happened in Germany with uh, Angela Merkel. Her party has tacked significantly rightwards. And even though they did, they still had 94 seats fell to the AFD, who are, you know, proper right, right-wingers, hard right-wingers. Even though she felt she had to move to the right, uh, they still, for the first time since in 50 years, the extreme right entered the Bundestag. This is what's happening across the continent. Tim, let's, let me understand uh, Germany. I was having a conversation with somebody just yesterday and they were saying, well, if Germany has accepted one million Syrian refugees in one year, a couple of years ago, how can this woman still still be in power? And I said, well, majority w- was decreased, but she still mm. maintained the confidence of the majority of Germans. So how has she managed actually to do that, considering there's been such pressure within Germany uh, to absorb 
one well, million new citizens. Yeah, a number of things. I mean, it wasn't a million Syrians, as you know. It was it was a million refugees and mixed amongst them some economic migrants with mm -hmm. large numbers of them, yes, coming from, from Syria. The German people, some of them, opened their arms and said, as she said, willkommen, welcome. And that speaks to the great democratic openness of Germany, probably Europe's most democratic country, with a very strong, also left of centre tradition, you know, stretching back a 100 years. And that section of the German society agreed with her policies. However, if you take the people, you know, the overall, it was unpopular. So realising she'd made this mistake, she then tacked to the right to save some of her seats. It wasn't enough, uh, as I said, because 94 seats were lost to the extreme right, uh, but she still hung on to enough to form a coalition government. But it's, you know, she got a real shock. Uh, she spoke with her heart, said, welcome, come, and uh, was probably surprised at the backlash that then came from enough of the Germans to put her electoral position in jeopardy. So she taxed to the right, but what we now have is a government with uh, a parliament with 94 right wingers. And most commentators said when they got 12% at the elections last autumn, last fall, that they would then decline. I didn't agree then, and I don't agree now because they're up at 15% at the moment. Do you think the EU, uh, maybe not tomorrow, but in, in a couple of years' time, will look? and maybe change this freedom of movement, monolithic, emblematic drive that it actually has. That, because that is the thing which has undone the liberal consensus yes, everywhere, isn't it? It is, more than anything. Um, and it's worth pointing out at, at this juncture that when it was liberalised that the East European countries, people, workers from there could come, the Germans and French took an opt-out of five years. The British said, no, you can come now, vastly underestimating that a million Poles would very quickly arrive in the United Kingdom, which is one of the many reasons behind Brexit. Um, but it is, it is um, a founding principle, is freedom of movement, including workforce. Once you... But, but, but Tim, but Tim, the, the EU was founded, what, 1954, something like that, you know, Iron and steel, yeah, you know, thing me bobbly, and there wasn't freedom of movement then. This freedom of movement, it seems to have come about um, in in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, well, it, it was on Maastricht you know, Treaty, then built on with there you go. the Lisbon Treaty yeah. in in the early nineties. So it's not fundamental. Yes, to yes, the it EU. is. It's fundamental. It may not have been there at the beginning, but it was always in the idea. L'idée de mm -hmm. as the French say, the idea of Europe was that you would build this unified state. And, and part of that is if we are one people and one state, which is what the end is, what some of people aim for, you cannot have one nation in which some people can't move around. So it is a fundamental principle of the modern European Union, which is why whenever the UK tries to negotiate something and, and tries to compromise when it says on getting out what it what the brits say well yeah we'll do this we'll do that but we're not having freedom of movement that is a red line for the europeans and it, it you know it's one of the things why we're now potentially going for a hard brexit which would be interesting to say the least but freedom of movement is no longer popular in many countries because of competition for jobs because after 2008 the money ran out uh, because of the uh, well, people coming from other parts of the world. So it's under great stress, but it's one of the last things that's going to go. Let's say from a British perspective that we have, that we don't necessarily realise the pressure that some countries have been under. Because, you know, Italy is on the front line, isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, a hop, skip and a jump away from Libya and has had to deal with um, migrants yeah economic migrants on it on its shores and 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 dead ones on its shores as yeah, well. well literally yeah i mean um economic migrants and the wave of refugees coming over on these boats that sink uh, just this week uh, i'm afraid there's been uh, and it's only monday uh, when we're recording um 
a couple of incidents of, of, of boat sinking and people drowning. And some of the uh, Italian islands, uh, Lampedusa, for example, mm-hmm. um, are, are very close to the, the, the Middle East um, coastlines, notably in, in Libya. And so people are prepared to risk it, but they die in, the, in their thousands and thousands. Now, what the new Italian government is saying, as well as kicking out 500,000 people, it is going to clamp down on the NGO boats that try to rescue people. Now, that sounds harsh. They say, no, we're going to save lives because fewer people will try. I don't know if you believe that, but that's what they say. They're going to put extra money into what passes for the Libyan Coast Guard. I mean, there is no Libyan Coast Guard. There are simply uh, different militias along the coastline that have got boats. They pretend that they're the Libyan Coast Guard. So that means you can now deal with them as a government and pay them to stop these boats from ever launching. Uh, which is they're also going to put a lot more money into that. You know, I mean, you have to pretend that there is a Libyan government uh, because you can't be seen to pay these gangsters, but that's pretty much what they are. And on that note, uh, we'll move on to um, a matter which is maybe less contentious, or maybe it is. It's the World Cup. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Britain's foreign secretary says Vladimir Putin will try to bolster Russia's image by hosting the Football World Cup in a similar way to how Hitler used the Olympics held in Nazi Germany. Addressing Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, Boris Johnson agreed with the comparison made by one of its members. I think that your characterization of uh, what is going to happen uh, in Moscow, in uh, the, uh, the World Cup, or in all the venues, yes, I think the comparison with 1936 is, is certainly right. Tim, was the British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson right to compare Russia's promotion of the World Cup to Adolf Hitler's use in terms of propaganda and the 1936 Berlin Olympics? No. Can you expand on that, no, sir? No, because it was wrong in so far as... Um, for all its faults, Russia, Putin's Russia in 2018 is a long, long way from Hitler's Nazi Germany in 1936. And so it is sort of factually, empirically wrong if you look at jailing rates, death rates, uh, you know, concentration camp rates. It's empirically wrong. It's also a, a big political mistake because let's not forget who had the greatest death rate of all in World War II, the Russians or the Soviets. You know, they they lost millions. Let's not forget Mm. who were our allies that made it all the way to Berlin, the Russians. So it it was wrong both politically and factually. Um, The point he was making is that Putin's modern Russia is a pretty hard-nosed place, to say the least, um, but I don't think that comparison was helpful. Might sound like a really silly question I'm going to pose, but why is hosting the Olympics 
and then the Winter Olympics and now the World Cup. Why was it? Why is it so important for Putin? It puts you well. I mean, obviously they're on the world stage, but it it says to the world, "Look what we can do. We are your equal." I mean, the Chinese used used the Olympics. Um, the Beijing Olympics, you know, as something of a coming out party because mm-hmm. they knew that, you know, thousands of journalists would come, do thousands of reports about modern China and change our perception. Uh, now, this is why I think the Russians are going to be are going to try to be on their best behavior. The authorities, I mean, and the football hooligans as well. Uh, it says, look at this vibrant modern state and these glowing, glittering new stadiums that we can build and look at our wonderful warmth of hospitality etc 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 you know it just shows the world that you're a player but the russians aren't though are they just moving on to the football (laughs) right i've never really been able to understand why a country with such a large population has manifestly failed on the world football stage i'm i share i share your uh, puzzlement um and even when it was the ussr when it could draw on you know a population twice what russia's is um they still have never been really that good. Now, um, just looking up the odds, Russia to win the World Cup, 50 to 1. So despite it being on home territory, uh, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I wouldn't go there. But there is history in the World Cup of governments paying for uh, for opponents to roll over, you know, Argentina, Peru, 1978. You know, so you could see, you know, I, I can't, I'm not looking at exactly who Russia are playing, but you oh, could see. Oh, well, they open against Saudi Arabia. Oh, there you go then. They got Saudi Arabia at, as, as the first game. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure Putin has, has said to his Saudi Arabian counterpart, we cannot afford to lose this first game. I. Or am I being too cynical? I'm sceptical. There's nothing wrong with a reasonable amount of cynicism. It's just that, you know, you're dealing with Saudi Arabia, one of the world's richest countries uh, with an extremely proud uh, young crown prince. So I don't, and they also uh, have to prove, you know, everybody is on the world stage. This is, I mean, I know some Americans uh, are still to discover the absolute joy of football. (laughs) This is the world's game and this is the world stage. It is the biggest sporting event. And um, Saudi Arabia is not going to roll over and have its tummy tickled by the Russians. They will be trying to win. Let me look down the list. Saudi Arabia, a thousand to one to win the World Cup. (laughs) So it's a world stage and most of the big players are there. But we are missing Italy. Yeah. Which was the obvious link from from the last uh, from the last segment. So I don't know how I missed that. We are missing Holland, and we're missing the United States. Yeah, um, I mean, of those three, it's it's Italy. I'll particularly miss. There's a real romance to the Azzurro, um, and I, you know, I know a lot of the not personally. I know who the Tim. players are, and I know the Tim. great history. Tim, Tim, Tim. As somebody who loves Italy the way that I do, it's the European country I've been to the most. Yeah. But it defies that lazy stereotyping of Italians being mercurial and excitable. The way that they play football okay. is like a machine. Oh, yeah. They're terrible to watch. They're never beautiful on the eye. The kits are always beautiful. They have yes. wonderful players, but technically, and actually as a unit, they kind of play like Germans. Uh, well, if they did, they might win more. Um, but... Well, Italy don't do too badly. What, no, 2008, they, no, they won the last, the last World Cup, or 2006? Well, people who don't like football can just perhaps make a cup of tea for a couple of minutes and then come back. But the Italian, I agree with you that they're not always the most exciting, but they are so brilliant at what they do. When you see them shutting the trap, when you see them uh, playing this possession, when you see them going slow, 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 and then suddenly quick, 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 goal. It, it's, it's, I, I, I'm utterly captivated by most Italian teams. Um, I'm, it's a shame they didn't make it. Neither did the Dutch, neither did the Americans. Um, that surprised me. You know, because they they remain a growing power, Which, and well, and also they play in a very easy group. The Americans, Concacaf. Yeah. You know, you basically you're guaranteed America and Mexico, and how they manage to mess that up, yeah. heaven only knows. So, um, okay, Brazil are the favourites, ninety-two, mm-hmm. equal favourites with Germany, then France, then Spain, and Argentina, and then plucky little England are seventh favourites at sixteen to one. 
So what do you think of our chances, Tim? Uh, better than usual, but I would still so? be very surprised if we won. But I think we have a great coach with a youthful team that has confidence and belief. And it was Johan Cruyff said that football is a game played in the mind. And if you have that belief coupled with that skill, I think we can certainly get out of the group, maybe even get to the quarters. Um, Looking at who we're up against, of course we're going to get out of the group. And I know we've got Belgium in there too, but you know we, we can come second with honour coming up against Belgium. But I think we're actually due at a semi-final. I really do. It's been a long time, 1990, since we had a semi-final in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. If we were to go out in a semi-final, I think there'd be national rejoicing, almost as big as Harry and, Harry and Meghan. What do you reckon? Uh, well, the audience would certainly be bigger. Um, TV audience for that is <laughs> million. It would, uh, you would d- double or triple that if we get to the semi-finals of the World Cup. Um, what I'm most interested in is the kit. Um, I just love football kits. Peru. It's well, I, I, I think we need a transatlantic translation there. You know, the kit. You mean the uniform? Oh, excuse. No, yeah, the shirt, the shorts, and the shirt. But I don't know how long you've got because there is also, of course, the homophobia and the racism aspect of the World Cup. So you're in charge. It's your program. No, no, no. Let's have a conversation, sir. So let's start with a kit. Let's do homophobia, and then we can end up with a touch of racism. No, can't we do? Kit last, so that we. All right, high. we're going to end on a high. All right, good. All right, so. <laughs> Are you far away, sir? Racism. Well, the racism. Um, there's been a massive, not outbreak. It's been going on for years in Russian football matches where black players are racially abused, and uh, the England players have had a conversation about it. Uh, they're not going to be walking off the pitch, but you know they, they they're going to hold together. I'm not convinced it's going to happen again, because I think that the Russian authorities will be ensuring people are on their best behaviours. Also, there is a theory that many of the ultras and the, the most violent of the Russian hooligans have already been told in no uncertain terms, not this time, my friend, you're not going to spoil it because we need to show the world this great modern country, which is in contrast to um last year in the Euros, where the Russian fans were, who attacked the English and others were almost lauded by the Russian authorities back home. We're hearing that some of the worst offenders have been told, go out, you know, take your holiday early, get out of here. And that is how some countries operate. I remember going to see the, um, the Pope's, Pope John Paul's last visit to uh, Warsaw. He was born near there. And we were there three days early and the town centre was full of drunks and um, drug takers, especially the railway station. And the day before he arrived, you couldn't find a single one. They'd all been herded onto buses and bussed out of town. That's the same sort of attitude, I think, that the Russian authorities are going to take. So I don't think it's going to be a mass outbreak. The problem for the black English supporters or anyone that's black from any of the countries uh, is being picked off you know, in a, in a, in a city centre at night. Um, but again, I don't think it's going to be as bad as it is on a normal daily basis, simply because extra police, people have been told to behave. On the homophobia, um, again, some of the gay, lesbian, uh, LGBT plus fans that follow England are going over with England uh, flags bearing the rainbow flag within it, which could fall foul of Russia's laws about promoting homosexuality, you know, which is now against the law, even though homosexuality isn't, promoting it is. So there could well be some confrontations uh, on, on that. So on the political level, it's going to be a very interesting World Cup. And you're going to end up with kits and uniforms. <laughs> now, I must admit, right, I quite like the England kit, that, though for me, the shorts are just a little bit too blue. Yeah, well, I was on BBC Radio last week, actually, um, mm-hmm. and we were talking about this subject. Um, and halfway through a, a 20-minute discussion about the different kits, I found myself suddenly talking about the plunging V neckline of the new Panama shirt. And I, <laughs> yeah, and I caught, I thought, hang on a minute. This is like all those people that were talking about Meghan's, Markle's dress um, during the, the recent wedding. I'm one of them, but about football shirts. And it, it really took, it caught me short. But um, nevertheless, uh, 
the, apparently the, the 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 shirt this year is the Nigeria. Nigeria. Yep, three. You know, three million sold already. I uh, explain this to me because. I when I read this, then I clicked online. And I thought, "Wow, I'm going to have mm. a thing of simple aesthetic beauty." Mm. And I saw there's something which looked like a late 1980s, early 1990s first division football kit. Uh, with I'm all with the- you. Um, it it does nothing for me. Um, for, you know, for those um, people not watching us live on HD 4K. <laughs> um, so basically a green front and then the arms and shoulders have got this black and white pattern which does look slightly like an eagle's wings they're known as the super eagles but i agree with you i was left cold by it but it, it everybody's writing this is the greatest football shirt ever invented i like the what? peruvian one which um diagonal yes, red stripe. diagonal red stripe like a sash it does look mm. like the, the admiral of the Peruvian Navy has sort of taken over the country and become El Presidente, but, and, and there's 11 of them. Um, I think it's a wonderful strip. I like the Japanese all away. Well, well, wait a minute. Just, what, what, whilst, whilst we're on that, yes. right, why the Jamaican company Red Stripe don't like, <laughs> do a cheeky bit of sponsorship for the Peru yeah. national team? Heaven only. Right. Sorry. Okay. I, I, it's not as you game. were with as you were with, with J- the Japan away kit. Is that dark blue? No, no, the, the, no, no, blue is their home yeah, kit. Yeah, the, the, but they're all white. Um, and it's, it's just a real pristine all-white kit. And the, one, the best known in the world, probably Brazil, the, the, the yellow shirts, the blue shorts. I mean, that's what people wear on the beach all over the world. But you know the Brazil kit actually shouldn't work. And it only works because that team is ridiculously successful because you've got this top with this, which is beautiful, the goldy yellow, and then with the green trim, that works. Then you wouldn't put blue shorts with a white trim. That does not work. (laughs) Aesthetically, it doesn't. It's two different kits thrown into one. But because it's Brazil, you just go, ah, okay, it's a classic. You've got all the wedding dress. Um, well, absolutely. But what, what, what I think we're both doing, and I think what everybody does, it, it is the aesthetic pleasure of shirt X. But we do also like like flags. You know, I wrote a book about flags once. It is also what we. Yeah, yeah I like that plug you got in there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're, yeah. you're coming at this shirt with. We know about the history of this particular nation's team, what it's won, its trials and tribulations, whether it plays in a really romantic manner or whether they're all butchers, and we project onto it. So there's a bit of that. And, of course, with the Brazilian one, that yellow sunshine as the, as the samba beat plays, you know, because the way they play football, usually not always, but usually. Um, I think Germany are going to win. Um, but unless England, once England are knocked out, I don't really mind, but I'll be watching almost every game. That's how sad I am. All right, then let's mash up your knowledge of flags with with, uh, with football kits and then we can exit out of this. Why do Germany play in white shirts and black shorts? Um, the German flag originally uh, was uh, red, black and white. Uh, this is before the VMR. All right, smart, smarty pants. All right, why does Italy play in blue? That goes back to the uh, Milan militia that were formed to take on Napoleon when Napoleon's army came over um, the Pyrenees and invaded Italy. The Milan militia, their flag uh, had blue and white in it. And that's one of the reasons why um, the... uh, uh, the Italian flag was then partially based, certainly the white of it, I think, um, on uh, the Milan militia, and the blue has come down through history. That's what I think has happened. I might have to go. I thought it was because blue was the colour of the kingdom of Sardinia. Okay, I will bow to your greater knowledge. Um, Though your your story sounded much more evocative, but I don't know if it's correct. No, neither do I, I actually. Uh, can we just... Scrub that and say that it's a great shirt anyway. But <laughs> it is it is totally a classic. The Italian football shirts. I still have a, a two thousand and six Italian football shirt, and there was something about just the color of the shade of blue. It was a little bit paler than normal, and it just hangs so beautifully. But Tim, <laughs> right? It, we have got all Meghan Markle, haven't yep. we? We have. Yep. Um, do you have a takeaway of the last seven days? Oh, um, well. So- I mean, so many things. Hold on a minute. Um, 
we've dodged a bullet on the trade war um, because although the steel tariffs uh, are kicking in so far it's not spiraling out of control into a proper global trade war um, uh, bah, 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 bah. and uh, I know it's so peripheral in most people's view but the result of the Slovenian election uh, tells me that um, reinforces my prejudices that of the direction of travel of European politics. Let us just 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 before uh, we wrap up because I, I'm fascinated by by Slovenia in so much of it's probably the one is one of the countries of Europe I know least about. I'll tell you what the capital is because I'm a nerd like that. I can give you a potted history of uh, where it used you know historically what it was called when it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, etc. But it it, it kind of goes un, under the radar, doesn't it? It's the, it was supposed to be the one bit of ex-Yugoslavia which was was mature and sensible you know it's it, they're not it's not croatia which has had its brushes with fascism mm-hmm. so what exactly has been going on in slovenia well it, it is quite success, relatively successful economically and it was one of the, the it joined the european union fairly quickly and, and it's always leaned westwards i mean it borders italy and there's a real sort of mediterranean italian Adriatic flair to the mm. country um I was always struck that when you go into Istria, which is in in yes. Croatia, all the towns still have in brackets Italian yes. names. You know, and, and and you're completely right. That Italian culture is just so redolent around there. But, but the Slovenians feel even I mean Trieste I think was um used to go between the two countries. Um what has happened is I'm afraid what has happened everywhere else, that it is partially to do with the movement of peoples. They are in the EU. Poles can go and work there, Hungarians, Romanians, Bulgarians, Brits, and also people from elsewhere in the world and the economic migrants and refugees have also arrived there. Not quite in the numbers of Italy and Spain and Greece, but they have arrived there. And this is uh, the backlash, I'm afraid. Um, It's uh, almost inevitable, um, but there is now another seriously right of centre, you know, government now being formed in, in Slovenia, which will attach itself probably to the other very, very right of centre governments, which are flourishing in places like uh, Hungary. On that pessimistic note, sir, why don't you just tell us what, what you're up to at the moment? You said you've, you've, you've got a book out, I believe. <laughs> That's nice of you to mention it. My new book is called Divided, Why We're Living in an Age of Walls. Um, it comes out in America, actually, in the fall. Um, but it's out here at the moment. Um, and it basically, 65 of the world's countries have now fenced or walled themselves off from their neighbours. That's more than a third of uh, all countries in, in, the, in the world. Of all the walls and fences built since the Second World War, most of them, the majority, were built this century. So the point I'm making is, um, you might think we're living in this ever-interconnected, developing, globalised world. I'm saying to you that globalization has slowed that the fences and the borders are going up um, and a lot of this is to do with pretty much most of the things we've just been talking about. Tim Marshall, thank you for uh, coming on to Mid-Atlantic to help explain and make sense out of the new Italian government and its coalition partners and also for talking about the sexiness of various kits in the World Cup. Don't forget, folks, you can write us a review on um, any podcatcher of your choice. Apple iTunes would be nice, but we don't really mind. Write us a review, shows your appreciation of all the things that we that we do here on, on Mid-Atlantic. You can write me an email where I'm royfield at gmail.com if you'd like to um, ask me a question or possibly suggest a topic for a future show. Take care. See you all again soon. Bye-bye. So how have you been? Yes, apart from the... Apart from the um... Pneumonia, it's uh, all, all's been well. <laughs> and where and when did you contract the pneumonia? Well, you never really know, but um, three days after I came back from Abu Dhabi, mm-hmm. well, obviously I'd been in airports and aeroplanes and things, and I came back into the beast from the east. Um, three days later, I came down with pneumonia. Now, that doesn't mean I got it in, uh, in there, but, it, you know, if you had to choose somewhere... I think that would be it.
it's it's been a few months. So apart from recovering, what else have you been up to recently? Oh God, um, launched, where have you been? Launched my new book, Divided, which in heart, uh-huh. which is doing okay. Um, paperback in September. Doing a lot of talks based around it and presentations. Um, bits and bobs of journalism and a fair amount of football. Meaningless, utter awfulness mid-table mediocrity Leeds United football but you know it's a cross you have to bear well we've got your cast up as our manager I thought you fired him no 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 are we talking Gary Monk absolutely he hasn't been fired he's a saviour oh absolute saviour we were second from bottom when he took over and he's guided us to to safety. No, no, no. In in Gary Monk, we all trust <laughs> in, in Birmingham. Like seriously, he when he was appointed, we got rid of Steve Cottrell. Yeah, it was a free sign of excitement. Went through the blue half of the city of Birmingham. Yeah. People just kind of knew uh, we were going to be on the up. And I think it's about three matches before he actually won won his first game. But we we were so dead in the water that we could afford to give him. Uh, you know, three matches to get it right. And uh, for us to beat Fulham on our last match was brilliant, considering that Fulham then That's went on to win the... yes. There you go. And, 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 in hindsight, we didn't even need to win that game in the end, but we still won yeah. it anyway. We could, have, we could have lost it and still stayed up because he did that well in his, I don't know, maybe nine games he was in yeah, charge. No, something I, like coming that. back to me, because I remember I was at, um, we were at, our last home game was... Uh, Leeds QPR, you know, obviously we were, everyone was checking the scores, and um, mm. yeah, that was the one of the ones that you know was sort of causing a big stir. No, no, listen, Gary Monk, um, you know, he's given us reasons to be optimistic for the next season. But why don't we start the show? Because I'm going to cut that in towards the end, because otherwise people moan. They'll go, "There's too much shit." Before you actually talked about the stuff. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.